Okay, uh, before we get into our sermon, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read you the 98th Psalm. Psalm 98, a psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm. With, the, with trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. All right now, I... Uh, going to read you our sermon text for today, and it's a rather sad sermon text for me because it is the last that will be in the book of Genesis, and uh, I've determined not to preach on anything twice in my life, and so I'm not going to be going back to Genesis, and uh, it, this means a lot to me, but before I actually do this, I would like to have one person in particular come forward, and her name is Kelly Carlin, so if you can come over here and stand next to me, I would appreciate it, and there's a reason why I'm doing this. And I want uh, the people on YouTube to uh, know this reason so that they understand uh, uh, the importance of uh, church and attending. And um, uh, this is not to snub anybody else. A lot of people have helped uh, with this ministry in many ways. Okay, But I selected Kelly for this because, as I did once before, she has missed two sermons out of 130 Genesis sermons. And those two were because her daughter was in a military uh, procession. And I would not expect her to miss uh, her daughter's military procession. But she, she's been here for 128 of the 130 Genesis sermons. And um, she did watch the other two on YouTube, I'm certain. So uh, I, I, my wife bought this. Whatever it is, I can't take credit for it. Um, uh, I'm not a present buyer. I, I, I would probably buy you like a pack of bubble gum. So that's for you. I want to thank, thank you for your faithful attendance. And I want to have the people out there know that you... Um, uh, are an example that they should follow. And I don't mean just the people in the church because everybody here is pretty faithful about attending, but the people on YouTube, uh, wherever they attend, or if this is their church, that we have a responsibility to honor the Lord through the learning of his word. And you've done a great job of that. So thank you, Kelly Carlin. And I want to also thank everybody else here as well because those of you who do come, good job, Kelly. Uh, Everybody here that attends faithfully, you know, Darla helped with the music, and Paul has helped with many, many things, he and Elaine, and then I've got my brother back there, and, you know, just people, uh, Sergio, who's not even in this church anymore, and he still does a, a, as much for it as unbelievable, a daily almost, so I, I don't want to exclude anybody, I just want everybody to know that my heart is thankful for the attendees and for the people that help here, and um, uh, one other thing I want to announce, because I didn't do any announcements today, um, and I will try to get a picture of this up if, it, if I can get it on before I uh, process the video today, is that we have some num-nums in the back, as we always do, but I have a cake to celebrate the uh, 130th uh, and final Genesis sermon, and if I can get a picture of it, I'll put it on the uh, rendered video today as well. And uh, please have a piece of cake. It's a big one. I don't want to take any home because I'm leaving and my wife isn't going to eat it, so if you uh, can, take a plate and put it on there and take the cake home. If you like cake, please do that and um, uh, lots of other good stuff to eat back there as well. So uh, there you go, and uh, now we'll go ahead and get into our sermon. Uh, this is Genesis 
50, verses um, 15 through 26, and this is called Grace, Mercy, and Faith, the final words of Joseph. So here we go, starting in the 15th verse. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please, for, uh, for the evil, they did evil to you. I'm sorry, I lost my, my concentration there for a second. Now, please forgive the uh, trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying. But God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land uh, to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. <clears throat> Today, here we are, we're looking over the final verses of Genesis. It is our 130th sermon in this book, and I would hope... And I mean this sincerely. I would pray that God is not displeased with the poor attempt that I have made to analyze and share this amazing treasure, which is the book of Foundations, the book of Genesis. Then I say that because I have gone back over what I've done and I found so many other things that I, I missed. It is just an astonishing book. No matter how much study, no matter how much reading, and how much presentation could be done on it, I don't think that we could ever plumb the depths of the mysteries that are hidden in this single book. And yet, we have 65 more ahead of us, and so we must move forward. I know, though, that I will never personally look again at the book of Genesis in the same way. And in turn, I will never look at the Bible in, as a whole in the same way again either. The journey of these past few years has only solidified in me that God's word is to be handled carefully, and that it is to be researched diligently, and it is to be read continuously. We will have absolutely no excuse when we stand before God and are evaluated for where we spent our time. If we neglect this precious treasure now, we only have ourselves to blame. So I would ask each of you to commit to never letting up in your pursuit of the treasures which are stored up in the pages of the Bible. Our text verse today comes from the 119th Psalm. It's a Psalm which I read every single day of my life. I read eight verses from it. Very first thing I do when I get up every morning is to read this. Here we go. This is from the 119th Psalm, starting in verse 57. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. For the redeemed, the Lord is our portion. And so we should keep his words, think on our ways in relation to them, and turn our feet to his testimonies. In the verses ahead, we will see the close of the record of the lives of the immediate family of Jacob. 
They are verses of reconciliation between once estranged brothers. It pictures the same story which we saw in an expanded form in the previous chapters, but it is given to prepare us for pictures of the future which are coming in the book of Exodus as well. And we will see also the last words of Joseph and the record of his death. God used his life to point us to Jesus and now a new figure from history, Moses, will arise to do the same. Joseph will enter into his time of rest in anticipation of that glorious day when God will raise his people to everlasting life. The promises are true and they will be fulfilled. Every one of them is contained in his superior word. So let's go there now and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is please forgive the trespass of your servants, which is verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Now, if we can remember from the previous sermon, the term Israel and Jacob are never mentioned after the first verse of the chapter in relation to Jacob the man. And now these are called Joseph's brothers. They're not called the sons of Israel as they're normally called. And further, it notes that their father was dead. It doesn't mention him by name. Little clues like this make a big difference in determining what is happening. In these verses, I'd like you to think of Joseph as Jesus and the brothers as the Jewish people of today, in the world today. The wording here in the Hebrew is in the imperfect or the future tense. It could be rendered something like, if Joseph hated us or pursued us hostily, then what would become of us? It is setting forth a possible but undesirable contingency, all right? In Hebrew, it says, Behashev yeshiv lanu. If returning, he caused to return upon us. They're worried about the evil that they committed. And at some future point, they're worried that maybe he is going to change his mind about the lost years and the lost time with his father and then take it out on them. As the Geneva Bible wisely says about this verse, an evil conscience is never fully at rest. And that's exactly what they have. They have an evil conscience because of what they did to him, and they're mulling over it now that their father's dead. Despite the assurances of the past, they still felt, felt the weight of their previous transgressions, and they knew how they would respond if they were in exactly the same situation. They could not see that Joseph was more forgiving in himself than they would have been. Verse 16, so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying. Now it's interesting to note that according to the uh, scholar, the Bible scholar, his name is Charles Ellicott, many Jewish expositors consider that this was untrue. The verse I just read, these Jewish expositor, expositors say that this verse is untrue and that Jacob was never made aware of the fact that his brethren had sold Joseph into slavery. Now, why do you think that they would hold that view? Considering what Joseph's life is continuously pictured, meaning Jesus Christ, there's no doubt about it, it's quite evident. He has been a perfect type of Christ in all ways. The entire story drips with the wrongdoing of the brothers and their culpability in what happened. If Jacob learned about it after the reunion, which he certainly did, I mean, he, they probably went back up and said, you know, Joseph is alive and we've got something to tell you. But that implies that anyone who would keep on denying that would continue to be guilty of the transgression. And in the same way, how many Jews of today are made aware of the story of Jesus Christ and yet deny it? 
The story of Joseph is an obvious indictment on the disbelieving Jews who have rejected Christ. There are Jewish websites, and I was uh, emailing with a friend about this just Monday or Tuesday. There are Jewish websites which are absolutely rabid in their condemnation of Jesus. One of them that I... uh, uh, he sent me a link to it. says, if I had the nail, I'd crucify him today. I'd put the nails in myself. They, have, they also are uh, rabid in their condemnation of believing Jews and even Christians in general. The conscience is a very, very heavy weight. And one way to attempt to stifle the conscience is to lash out against what we know to be the truth, but we simply won't acknowledge. And we see this all the time, especially in politics. Something is going to be proven 100% false, like a um, global warming, for example. But instead of simply acknowledging guilt in that matter, what do they do? They start accusing the people that are right, that have done the research, and the reason why is because pride steps in, and they simply don't want to face it. And so they take a challenge against anybody that says that they're wrong. Al Gore is a perfect example of this. He belittles everybody that says that global warming isn't true, even though there's no evidence for it. It's a weakness of the mind, and it's a type of overweening pride that causes us to simply refuse to acknowledge guilt. And so some scholars say that the brothers now are simply lying by making up words which Jacob never said. And there is no hint that that is correct, and it even violates the premise of the Bible, which if they had lied, the Bible would say it specifically. And I'm going to give you an example of this from Genesis 34. When the brothers did, in fact, lie, the Bible notes it so that the reader is aware of it. Here's what it says in that particular passage. It says, But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. So it specifically notes when somebody lies in the Bible so that we know what's going on. What is being said here is simply an unrecorded conversation between Jacob and the sons. They surely acknowledge their guilt to Jacob at some point. There's just no doubt about it. Probably, like I said, as soon as they got back to the land of Canaan. Then before his death, they went to him and they reminded him of it and probably even asked Jacob to speak on their behalf. And now they're doing that through him. They were laying Jacob's words to Joseph. In this message to Joseph, they used the exact same word, tzava, which was used by Jacob twice in chapter 49 when he commanded his sons, including Joseph, where to bury him. In other words, the charge that is being given from Jacob is as important as his own burial request. All right, verse 17. Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. This half of the verse here are the words of Jacob as relayed by the brothers to Joseph. It is, in essence, a call from beyond the grave, petitioning his son to be forgiving and to let go of the sin and the evil that the brothers committed against him. If Jacob was desirous of him forgiving those lost years and the many heartaches which were associated with what happened, then Joseph should be as well, all right? Especially considering that the same lost years and heartaches were felt by him. Remember, he grieved the entire time he thought his son was dead. In essence, it is a request to be merciful because he was merciful. That doesn't sound like God the Father and Jesus right there. I mean, unbelievable how... The, the, the picture of Joseph in a type of Christ is just astonishing. Jacob never made any reference to what the sons did to Joseph in any of his blessings upon those 12 sons. Remember during the uh, chapter 49 when he blessed them, he didn't make any reference to it. Unlike Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, of whom he brought back the memory of their wicked deeds, nothing of what happened to Joseph was stated. Instead, Jacob saw what had happened 
just as Joseph did. It was a way for God to affect his purposes to the family of Israel. And before he died, he blessed his sons when he could have cursed any or all of them. He's asking for the same attitude for his, from his beloved Joseph. His words are, Sana pesha achecha, forgive now the trespass of your brothers. Verse 17 continues, Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. Well, this half of the verse is from the brothers repeating Jacob's request and petition for themselves. The words are, Ve'ata sana lepesha. Now forgive, we pray, you the trespass. But instead of saying your brothers, they say, Abdi Elohe Achecha, the servants of the God of your father. Instead of petitioning him as brothers, they do so as servants of the same God of that of Jacob who is the hope of Israel. It is a stronger appeal than even the bonds of family. In essence, they together with Joseph serve the same God. In this is a deep sense of humility mixed with sincere repentance and the surety that their words are earnest and that they're truthful concerning their relationship to him and to their God. No other words could be added that would make any greater difference in Joseph. If he were to reject this petition, absolutely nothing further would do. Verse 17 continues with this, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. What they failed to realize is that Joseph had placed his fate and his lot in the hands of the Lord from his earliest days. He did accepted his lot when he was sold down to Potiphar's house. He accepted it when he was in prison, and he accepted it even when he was elevated to the second highest position in all of Pharaoh's land. The naming of his children demonstrated faith in God's provision as well. Everything in Joseph's life accepted that God was directing him and that it was not his position to buck against that. What his brothers intended for evil, God, in fact, intended for good. And because of this, when he received their words, he broke down and wept. First, that they didn't fully comprehend God's hand in all of it. Secondly, because their fear concerning this matter and how it would affect them personally. They were worried about that and also because of their lack of trust in their own brother, even after many, many demonstrations of care of them over the past 17 years since they had come down to Egypt. They desired forgiveness from a brother who had long, long ago forgiven them. They desired his embrace when they had forgotten that many years earlier he had called them in and embraced them. And they desired his fellowship when it was only their own insecurity which hindered what they desired. And so that brings us real quickly to a little life application about forgiving. And I am not one of these people that you'll see on Facebook saying, you must forgive everybody, because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does teach, though, that if somebody repents, you must forgive them. Every single verse that people quote about unconditional forgiveness is taken out of context. They'll talk about Jesus on the cross, and they say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, guess what? They know not what they do. And that's why he was asking for that forgiveness. The question is, were the Jews forgiven 40 years later? No, they were exiled because they had rejected their Christ. Uh, Paul says, um, forgiving everybody just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Well, how did God in Christ Jesus forgive us when we called on and received Jesus Christ? The question is, is the guy across the road that's rejected Christ forgiven? No. God doesn't put us to a higher standard than he does himself. But he does say that if we are asked of for forgiveness that we must, we absolutely must give that. 
Now, other people will go so far as to say, if you don't forgive, then you won't be forgiven. Taking Jesus' words, which were spoken under the law to the people of Israel. And that also isn't true, because the reason why is that we are forgiven in Christ. Past, present, and future. If you call on Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. But what you're doing when somebody comes and asks for forgiveness and repents to you is that you're putting up a wall between yourself and your creator, just like any other unrepentant sin. And so you are forgiven in Christ, but you need to remember that if somebody repents and asks for forgiveness, even to 77 times a day, that's what we're to do, okay? And that's exactly what Joseph has been doing here. He is, they've asked for forgiveness, and he had already forgiven them in his own heart and in his actions. They'd seen that for the past 17 years, but now they know that it's true, that their father is dead, and they have this fellowship with their brother. Preserve our lives, though we have done you wrong. You are our brother. Our souls are in your hand. Save your servants who trust in you. Be merciful to us, O brother, here in this foreign land. For we petition you all day for our lives. Rejoice the souls of your servants today. For to you, O brother, we lift up our souls. Extend to us your mercies. This to you we pray, for we know you are good and ready to forgive. Please extend to us this mercy that we may live. Think of Joseph. Think of Jesus. Our second thought today, the sovereignty of God, verses 18 through 21. Verse 18 begins with, Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, just so you know, if you read commentaries, this can get a little confusing. This verse here seems to contradict what happened in the preceding two verses. Verse 16 said, so they sent messengers to Joseph. Then verse 17 said, and Joseph went and they spoke to him. And now it says they also went and fell down before his face. Well, this verse now might agree with verse 16, where they sent a messenger and then they later went, but not with verse 17, where it says they spoke to him. How could they go into him and fall down before him if they already spoke to him? This is not a problem. The word messengers that I've read you from the New King James Version of the Bible is inserted by the translators. If you look at it, it's in italics. It's an inserted word. All right. Young's literal translation of the Bible says this, and they gave a charge for Joseph instead of so they sent messengers to Joseph. In other words, they went to see Joseph and were probably standing right there all the time maybe standing back a little bit from him in fear. When they saw him weeping at the message that they gave him, they drew near and they fell down at his feet. There is absolutely nothing contradictory at all in this verse. The only problem is the choice of the words used in the translation. Reading different versions of the Bible, and this is why I tell people to do this, read different versions of the Bible and study the different possibilities of what a word means will always help at times like this. Because if not, you don't really have an idea of what's going on. The word messengers isn't in there at all. It's a translator preference. Now, once a translator inserts a word like sent messengers, we tend to trust that that is what happened. But the same word translated in other versions is translated other ways without ever using that inserted word messenger. So with understanding that, we can know that it was Joseph's emotions, which they saw with their own eyes, that prompted them to fall down before him. Thus, for a final time in their lives, they have fulfilled the dream which Joseph dreamed when he was a young boy, all the way back in Genesis chapter 37. There, these words were recorded. Now, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then, behold, my sheaf arose and stood also stood upright, and indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. 
before learning his identity, and again now, when their father is dead, they have humbled themselves and offered themselves as his servants. And both times, the parallel to Jesus is evident. At first, they thought they were bowing to the ruler of the great house of Pharaoh. At that time, it pictured the Jews in the temple without realizing that Jesus is the Lord. That's going to happen in our future. In the future, it will be when they finally realize his true identity. These two accounts contrast, and yet they confirm. As you've seen, every time two things happen in the Bible, and only two times, there's a contrast and a confirmation of them. This happens again and again and again. They contrast in that in the first case, they were bowing to an unknown ruler. In the second instance, it was to their known brother. First to an unknown ruler, the second time to their known brother. This pictures Christ in his divine and in his human natures. He is Jehovah of the temple worship, and he is the human Jesus who is of the stock of Israel. And this is certain because in verse 17, they called themselves the servants of the God of your father. Now they say, behold, we are your servants. This picture is going to be exactly fulfilled someday in the future when they know who Jesus is. The pictures laid out here are so precise and they're so wonderful. How God has taken this word and shown us everything that is coming in the future and revealing it in a way that we can see both Jesus' human and his divine nature. It is astonishing. What, what a word he's given us. What an absolutely wonderful word. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? I want you to know this, though. Every single translation that I reviewed, and that was a lot of translations, translates this verse in the exact same way, in the form of a question. And yet, the word am is inserted by the translators, and so we don't know if it's a statement of fact or if it's a question. And so it appears here that Joseph is asking if he has the right to judge them. Taken in connection with his next words, that may seem to be a valid way of looking at it, and yet scholars are almost universally in agreement with it. And yet, I want to tell you that one brave scholar stepped forward, and he states this verse as a statement of fact rather than a question. A guy named Wordsworth translate, translates this verse, I am in God's stead, meaning he stands in the place of God for judgment. And of course, this is exactly what Joseph is relaying to them, and he will continue to relate to them in the next verses. This is certainly the correct translation. Only translating it this way fulfills the picture of Jesus accurately. In other words, Joseph is relaying to them that I am a minister to you on God's behalf for good. They're worried about him taking it out on me, saying, no, I'm your minister on God's behalf to take care of you. He's reassuring them in a statement of fact, not in a question. Verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day. Once again, the sovereignty of God is written all over this verse, as it is throughout the entire Bible. The words literally read, and you were thinking evil against me, Elohim was thinking for good. The verb for both is the same, and it sets in contrast the purposes of man with the purposes of God. He took then, and he can take now our evil actions and work through them for his ultimate purposes and for our good. And I got to tell you what, if that one thought from the Bible doesn't reassure you, I can't think of what else would. I mean, you, we talk about Romans 8.28 all the time. Oh, you know, all things are, uh, occur for good for those who are the called 
uh, according to his purposes and we say that and then when something bad happens we say oh god why did this bad thing happen to me when we should be saying i am trusting that this is true no matter what then i repeat this verse to myself all the time this past week i probably had 10 things that would just totally dishearten me the worst of all walked through the door about five minutes ago before just as we were starting the sermon we got tavo over here and he called me two days ago and he said you know what we're leaving i got a call to leave and he said i got everything up on craigslist and uh we're selling it all and most of it's sold already and we're going to be gone in a couple days and my heart was absolutely broken i've come to love these two and now they're gone and I, i the first thing i thought was you know what does god have in store here and I was certainly depressed. I mean, anybody that got an email from me, I mean, within two minutes, I had emailed probably four people sitting here right now saying, you know, I, I just, I'm depressed about this. But at the same time, I kept repeating to myself, Romans 8:28. This is being worked out for good because we are the called according to his purposes. It's good for him, it's good for his wife, and it's good for this church in some way or another. First thing Paul did was email back and he said, you know what? They know that you have online streaming coming. And they know that you have videos. And maybe this will help somebody up there because if you know where he's going, he's going to North Dakota where the oil industry has just blossomed. And in 2010, I heard about this and I thought, man, what are people going to do? There are not going to be enough churches to support all of the people up there. It's just not going to happen because they got thousands of people going there every single day. And I actually thought as I was driving around America preaching at the capitals, maybe, maybe I could go up and start a church because those people are going to need it. Because if you don't have churches, you're going to have what we have where this church is right here, 24 bars within walking distance. And so I thought about it, and then I thought, you know, my wife's not going to want to go to North Dakota, and I certainly don't like cold weather. So we stuck it out here in tough Florida. But uh, he's going somewhere where maybe they don't have enough churches, and so he can tell them, well, we can watch right online on Sunday morning. And that was thanks to Paul for reassuring me of that. But Romans 8.28 is true. And that's what we're seeing in this verse here. And we've seen it again and again in the life of Joseph. Uh, Verse 20 continues, to save many people alive. The term here is lahachayot amrav, to save alive numerous people. And this is exactly what occurred 2,000 years ago when the Jewish people first crucified their king and then rejected him after his resurrection. They intended evil against him, but God intended that many people would survive because of him. It wasn't just the Egyptians, but all of the surrounding countries that were saved by Joseph. He was a Lord to all of the Gentiles. And so it's true with Jesus. In him has been found the salvation of many, many people. Paul explains this in great detail in the book of Romans, but it can be summed up from these words from Romans 11. Here's what he says. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Many people saved alive because they rejected him. And so all Israel will be saved. And that's where we're heading in these Genesis and soon-to-be Exodus sermons. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We're going to see that. Ezekiel chapter 37 that we reviewed last week is pointing right to that time, and we are there in human history. What an exciting time to be alive. This picture in Genesis was given to show us exactly what would transpire in the ages following the first advent of Jesus Christ. We're coming to the end of that time now, and we are certainly within a very short time of his return for the church and the final fulfillment of these beautiful 
types and pictures that were written so very long ago. Verse 21, Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. The entire narrative from verse 1 of this chapter until right now has been an insert in the history of Israel. We saw that last week. The bowing of the brothers to Joseph was... uh, which we just saw has brought us back to the time after their acknowledgement of Jesus, which was recorded in Genesis chapter 45. We have now returned to the time of the tribulation period, which was pictured by Jacob's move to Egypt, and they're settling into Goshen. These words now then are a repeat of what he told them in that chapter when he said these words in Genesis 45, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And we're going to see that continuing, this picture continuing in the book of Exodus. The repetition in today's verses is to show us that this is where we are in history as we set to close out the book of Genesis and to enter into Exodus with the great redemption of God's people. The symmetry of the Bible is simply more than astonishing. It shows wisdom far, far above what could have been planned by even the greatest of human minds. Instead, it shows pre-planning and continued care throughout the entire 1,600 years or so that it took to pen the words from Genesis to Revelation. Verse 21 continues, and he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The words here reflect reassurance and care. By his actions and by the words which he spoke to the brothers, they knew that the past was forgotten. He spoke spoke softly and he spoke with grace, letting them know that they were forgiven. As it says in the original Hebrew, Vedaber al-Livam. He spoke to their hearts. See, we don't get that in our translation, but that's what it says. It is a beautiful representation of Jesus Christ, pardoning sin, forgiving iniquity, and speaking to the hearts of the people he loves and whom he calls brothers. The life of Joseph is one which was chosen to reflect the long-suffering, the forgiving, and the gracious and yet exalted king who rules with mercy and wisdom, who is our Lord Jesus. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery I now tell, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel." Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, I profess. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away from Jacob their ungodliness. For this is my covenant with them, I do a prize, when I take away their sins before their very eyes. Our third thought today, the death of Joseph, verses 22 through 26, and the completion of the book of Genesis. Verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. Joseph lived 54 years after the death of his father Jacob. During the rest of his life, we can infer that he remained in Egypt. As he was sold there at the age of 17, it means that he stayed in the land of Egypt for 93 years. During all of that time, only the trip to bury his father in Canaan is recorded. Other than that, all of his time was outside of the land of promise. Verse 22 continues. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph was born right around the year 2260 from the creation of the world. He lived 110 years, and so his death came at approximately the year 2370. Interestingly, it is noted 
in the Egyptian records that they have discovered that the age of 110 was believed to be the ideal age to die. And I wonder if they got that from the life of Joseph all those years ago. And as an added bit of interest for all of you that like these little brain squiggles, Joshua, who is a descendant of Joseph, and the one who took Joseph, will be the one to take Joseph's bones to their final resting place, he also dies at the age of 110 years old. And both of their lives were used as types and figures of the coming Christ. In all, Joseph was in his high and exalted position in Egypt for 80 full years, having ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh at the age of 30. During all of that time, even during the famine which ravaged the earth, Egypt grew in both prosperity and in wealth. At the same time, the people of God who were in their infancy when they went and, uh, down to Egypt and they arrived there, they also grew and exceeded, uh, they, exceeded, uh, flour they flourished exceedingly. I'm getting my words all twisted up today. Anyway, you can see the, the comparison there, how the people of God are flourishing just as the way Egypt did, even in a time of great famine. Verse 23, Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. This means that Joseph actually saw his great-great-grandchildren. In all, then, there were five generations of Joseph's family living at the same time. And this is much, much more than many of the other records of the Israelites, such as Moses, who was only the fourth generation from Levi who entered into Egypt. Moses, only four generations later, led Israel out of Egypt. In other words, the family of Ephraim was exceedingly fruitful and was so at early ages, which is what his name means. Ephraim means fruitful. This then is an early fulfillment of Jacob's blessing upon Ephraim over Manasseh, if you remember that, which occurred before his death and which is seen in the continuation of verse 23. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. In the line of Manasseh, only his grandchildren are noted as uh, being there during his life. Being brought up on the knees may imply adoption. And I want you to know that Joseph may have actually adopted them as his own. In the Song of Deborah, which is in Judges chapter 5, Machir is listed as equal among the other tribes of Israel who went off to war. And he was the head of the tribe of Manasseh who was to the west of the Jordan River. So it could be that he was actually elevated in that status, though the Bible doesn't explicitly say it. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, now which of his brethren is, are actually alive at this time? We have no idea. If they're all alive or if some are alive, some Jewish commentaries say that all the brothers were alive at this time, whatever. But this is probably a general statement to all of his kinsmen of all of his tribes. It is the collective group of people who are Israel, who he is speaking to, and of whom he is tying himself to, even in his final breaths. Verse 24 continues, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. With the sure knowledge of his coming departure, Joseph utters words of faith. He says, Ve Elohim pakod yifkod etchem. And God visiting you will surely visit you. The repetition is given to show the absolute faith that he has in the promise which, which was sworn to Abraham and which was passed down to both Isaac and to his father Jacob. It is going to come about. This verse then is an anticipatory statement which prepares us for the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. 
after the death of Joseph, not another word is going to be uttered concerning the years in Egypt until the time of the birth of Moses, which is a period of about 64 years. Verse 25. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Just like his father before him, Joseph now requires an oath from the sons of Israel. He believed that the promise would come about, and he wanted to lay at rest among his people rather than in the noble state that he would have enjoyed if he laid in repose in Egypt. Despite bearing an Egyptian name, if you remember, he was called Zaphnath Paanea, the savior of the world. And despite being married to uh, an Egyptian wife of the priestly class, you remember her, her name was Asenat. And despite being the second ruler of all of the land, he remained always and forever an Israelite. He desires for his people and for them to take him back to the land from which he came. And his desires never faded and his devotion to God never wavered. He is an exact picture of Christ in all ways. And so much for replacement theology. If he wanted to be buried with his people as an Israelite, Jesus never gave up his Jewishness. People that say that, ah, oh, Jesus is a Christian, man, they have fundamentally misunderstood the Bible. Jesus was born a Jew. He lived as a Jew. He died as a Jew, and he is going to return to Jerusalem. He's even said it with his own words. Oh, you Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who slay the prophets, I tell you, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I know I misquoted that verse, but he told them, I am coming back to you, but not until you call me your Lord. So there you go. He is a picture of Christ in all ways. And once again, he repeats the surety of the matter concerning God's presence among them. As he said, again, Pakod yifkod etchem Elohim, visiting you will surely visit you, God. And when he does, he wants his bones carried up from there with them. They're the last recorded words of Joseph. And of all of the honors and all of the accolades of his long and his fruitful life, they are the only words recorded about him in the Hall of Fame of Faith which is noted in Hebrews chapter 11. We read there this summary of his life. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Imagine that. Everything that he did in his entire life of such, you know, magnanimous wonder. And yet the only thing that he's recorded for is his faith. And we talked about that in the Bible class before uh, church today. It doesn't matter what you do. You can clean toilets for the church or you can be the pastor behind the pulpit as long as you are exercising faith in what you are doing, that you are pleasing to God through that. That is what God is looking for. That is it. That is what you will be rewarded for. You can do the greatest things in the world without faith and receive absolutely no reward for it. Or you can have the faith of a child and you will be rewarded greatly. You know, Jesus asked him, you give a cup of cold water to somebody in my name and what is a child going to do? When you give them a cup of cold water, they're not going to, you know, if you, they're, they're thirsty and they don't know who you are and you say, here, this is for you, they're going to drink it. They're not going to say, gee, what did you put in here? You know, is there a poison here or anything? They're naive. They simply by faith look to God and they say, or to whoever is giving them the gift, and they say, I'm going to drink this. Well, that's what God wants from us. Simple, simple faith. So the greatest deeds that you do, as the Bible shows you, are deeds of faith. Those are the very greatest all of this, all of this, above all of it, that is what he was noted for. The request that he made was fulfilled by the Israelites as they marched out of Egypt too. In Exodus chapter 13, it specifically says that they carried Joseph's bones out with them 
and eventually another generation of Israelites carried them into the land of promise and buried him there as is recorded in Joshua 24. Here's what it says. The bones of Joseph, which were which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver and which had become an inheritance for the children of Joseph. And so the narrative of the immediate family of Israel ends with the promise of redemption from Egypt, which is based on the oath made first to Abraham. This oath had been carried and remembered for approximately 286 years. We are God's people, and he has a plan for our future. This visitation of God is in accord with his promises, but it is also in accord with his nature. God visits man in two main ways in the Bible. The first is through grace and mercy, and the second is in judgment due to a violation of his just, righteous, and holy nature. The greatest demonstration of his visitation in and among the realm of mankind is in the person of Jesus Christ. After 4,000 years of failings and backslidings by those he created, he stepped out of his eternal realm and united with human flesh that he once breathed the breath of life into. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, spoke of the coming visitation in Luke chapter 1. Here's what he says. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. The many pictures and stories found in the Old Testament merely point to a greater fulfillment in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. Joseph is one of the individuals in human history who has been so greatly honored to picture him. And he did it in numerous and remarkable ways, as we have seen over these past many, many sermons. Surely, and I mean this, he is going to be astonished when he is raised to his eternal home and he looks back on how God so carefully and meticulously guided the events of his life to show something even more majestic. But now... He awaits that day as we see in our final verse of the book of Genesis, verse 26. Joseph died, so Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph died. It's about 1635 years before the coming of Jesus Christ right now. Instead of his body being taken to Canaan and buried, his remains are kept in Egypt, and probably they were kept among the Israelites. And so we have an interesting contrast to the saints of the tribulation period of our future. Joseph remained in Egypt in body, though his spirit had departed. Jesus will continue to remain with his saints in spirit until he physically returns. Both, however, are signs to the people that God's promises will be kept. At the Exodus, God will judge Egypt by plagues and the redeemed will come out carrying Joseph's bones. During the tribulation, God will judge the world by plagues and the redeemed will hail the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Again, his age is noted as 110 years, but this time the Hebrew says it differently. It says, Ben Miah ve'aser shanim, a son of 110 years. The years of his life are personified. Though years are inanimate objects, they are, as the Bible often does with inanimate things, they're brought to life. They are made to represent his birth, his growth, his understanding, his speech, and all of the other things that humans do. In this verse, the years are used as a summary of the life of Joseph from his birth all the way until his death. 
And upon his death, he becomes the second and the last person noted in the Bible as being embalmed. After this, his remains were placed in a coffin. The word for coffin here is the first use of the word Aaron in the Bible, a word which next time will be used to describe the Ark of the Covenant. Joseph's coffin would probably have been made of the exact same wood as the Ark. It's wood known as Shittim wood. It's an incorruptible wood which was selected and used because it was incorruptible. The book of Genesis began with the creation, including the creation of man. He became a living being. No sooner is that recorded than the spiritual death promised for disobedience was highlighted. Since that time, the premise of the Bible is that man is born to die, which in turn implies that man is born spiritually dead. Thus, physical death is inevitable. The book of Genesis ends with this sad fact unresolved. Joseph is nothing recorded in his entire life which would otherwise indicate a sinful man, and yet he died. The death was inherited from Jacob, who inherited it from Isaac, who inherited it from Abraham, and it goes all the way back to our first father, Adam. It is a sad commentary on humanity, but at the very beginning, right after the fall, came a promise. One would come to undo the curse and to free us from the life of troubles, afflictions, and inevitable death that we all face. Joseph lived under the curse, and he died under the curse, but he lived in faith through it. His promised reward is coming, and it can come for you too. The Bible is slowly and methodically working to an amazing completion in a plan which is devised and implemented by God even before the foundation of the world, and it is all centered on his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would, I'd ask for just one more moment once again to explain to you the very simple message of how you too can participate in his finished work and to be reconciled to God and to live out eternity in his presence in a world that is so richly wonderful that we can't even contemplate it at this time. And before I tell you this, I want to explain to you, you know, I give a call every single week and I'm preaching to the crowd because I know most people here have heard this a million times, but there's a couple reasons why we give a call every time. Is because one, I don't truly know what you believe and I don't want anybody to not hear this as often as I can say it. And the second reason is because obviously we have YouTube going and maybe somebody will click on the sermon wanting to know something and he wants to, you know, just find out what the Bible's all about and he might hear the call. But there is another reason why I like to do this week after week is because each one of you is responsible for telling other people about Jesus Christ. And it's hard. It's not easy to just sit down at, at a restaurant and say, you know, I want to tell you about Jesus. Because if the words aren't known to your brain, then it's hard to get them out. And you feel embarrassed and your ears turn red. But if you can remember what you hear week after week and say, I want this message to be told to this person, that's why, that's the third reason why I want to do this week after week. And the four verses that you need to remember, they're very simple. It says, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Nobody here can deny that they have sinned. They can deny it, but they, you know, implicitly deny it, but they, they can't actually. We all know that we've sinned. We've all told a lie. We've all done something that has offended a holy and righteous God. And when we sin, the Bible says another verse. It says the wages of sin is death. That's about 12 words you've had to remember so far. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in us. And that's the importance of seeing the life of Joseph is that not one sin of the life of Joseph is recorded, and yet he died. God specifically did not mention sins to show that he is a human fallen man through his father. 
So the wages of sin is death. And then we have this beautiful verse that follows after it. But, begins with but. All this bad news here, here comes some good news. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? A gift is something you cannot earn. It's something that you simply reach out and you receive. If you are given something, you say, well, here, let me give you $10 for it. All you're going to do is offend the giver. This is a gift for you. It's something I want you to have. And God will be offended every time we try to pay him back by, ah, I got to do something to be saved. No, I've done the work. I've done it right here at the cross of Jesus Christ. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is it that you do in order to receive that gift? Here it is. Remember these words, but all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call on Jesus. I understand that I'm sinful and I can't get rid of my sin on my own. I know that Jesus did it for me. The wrath that God has against my sin went to the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm calling on him to save me. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never done that in your heart, I would ask you to do it today. Now is the day of, now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. That was part of my Bible reading this morning. I happened to be in that chapter as I was reading. I said, that's a good verse to remember. I remember 2001. Have my business right down the road here and I was walking in and the guy at the vacuum store next to me, Charlie, Charlie, a, build, a plane just hit a building up in New York. I turned on the TV and as soon as I turned it on, I saw another one run into the second one and all those people jumping out of the window that he showed until finally the camera stopped showing these people jumping hundreds of stories up. Not one of them thought, I'm going to go up in this elevator today and I'm going to be jumping out of the building because I have a choice of either burning to death or squashing on the asphalt. Not one of them thought that. We don't know our end. So the importance of telling people about Jesus Christ is absolutely vital. I had a couple of Verizon guys here over the past two days, and I told them both about Jesus. One of them laughed the entire time that I talked to him. He, he laughed at me. He says, yeah, I've been brainwashed in Catholic training when I was young. And I said, Catholicism isn't what's going to get you to heaven. Jesus Christ is. And he continued to laugh. He mocked through the whole thing. It's Okay. He allowed me to talk. I'm not going to shut up until he tells me, please don't tell me anymore. And he didn't. So maybe he really wanted to hear. I don't know. Anyway, our closing verse today is uh, from the 106th Psalm. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Unreal. Next week, Paul Stoll is going to preach, and I would hope that everybody would here be here to support him if you can be. All right? This is a, a real treat. I know it is, and I'm sorry I won't be here to see it, but he's going to preach on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 31. And uh, after that, I'm going to come back, and we're going to start a short series on the book of Ruth. And I wanted to go directly into Exodus. I, I kind of like that, but uh, I had some people that wanted to hear something out of the ordinary for a while and Ruth is such a beautiful book so we're going to do that it'll take just a couple months to get through that it'll be uh, called Famine and Heartache Ruth 1, 1 through 5 I'll tell you this before we uh, have our, uh, our uh, last poem of the book of Genesis and before we take communion that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you and he has a good plan and a purpose for you so call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you all right our poem is called Words of Grace, Mercy, and Faith. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, perhaps Joseph will hate us, they said, and he may actually us repay for all the evil which we did to him when we threw him in the pit and then sold him away. So they sent messengers to Joseph as if praying, 
Behold, before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin. Though they did evil to you, mercy to them give. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Their words pained his heart they did bother. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. We are yours here in this place. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? And so to them no wrath he displayed. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about as it is this day, you see, to save many people alive, surely you have understood. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them to the other eleven of Israel's sons. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived to 110, the years of his life, as we are told. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who were also brought up on Joseph's knees, bringing him elation. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. It shall come to pass. His promises are true. To the land of which he swore, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, it will be our possession forevermore. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here, this promise and the oath I request of you. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt until the promise would come of which he foretold. And so closes out Joseph's life story, and also closes out the book of Genesis too. Each page has progressed towards the glory of the coming of Christ, who will all things renew. Lord God Almighty, thank you for this wondrous book. Thank you for the pictures that look ahead to our Lord Jesus. He is found in every passage, if we just but look, of all these wonders you have given to us. Praise you, O God, and may you rejoice in our praise, and may we never cease to pursue you all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Glorious Heavenly Father. Thank you for the book of Genesis, all of the wonderful treasures that you have put in there. I pray that each person that has been in this church over these many sermons has been blessed through your word and that they will continue to seek you and pursue you all the days of their life, knowing that we could never plumb the depths of this marvelous treasure, that we can only just little bit by little bit increase our knowledge in it. Help us to be kind and forgiving to each other to have humble hearts before you, to walk in your ways, and to be obedient to your word in the things that you would have each of us do. And above all, help us. Give us the strength to praise you. If you take everything else away from every person in here through famine or through economic collapse, if you will give us just enough strength to praise you each day, I know that that will be sufficient. Allow us that honor, and we'll be sure to do it. We'll use that last breath of ours to give you honor and glory, which you are so infinitely worthy of. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in his name we pray, amen.